Coast Church Charlotte. And how he handled that. And today we're starting at verse number 13. And I want to encourage you to, to follow along with me in the scripture. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now notice the following story. Remember, all of the gospel writers agree in this. They could not tell the whole story. If everything Jesus did or said was written down, uh, it would fill the world, so to speak. Now, if... If you're not going to tell it all, you have to pick your stories. You have to edit the available stories. And here we have Mark, John Mark, uh, written, writing under the tutelage of Peter. Mark is Peter's story, written down by uh, John Mark. And you see here this unique story placed right beside the children brought before Jesus to be blessed. Verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, so he has been blessing the children, and now having sort of gathered everyone, having finished this child dedication time, you might think, um, he starts to journey. As he's going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit good life, uh, eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, do not or rather honor your father and your mother. And he answered to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus looking at him, loved him. I love that. Jesus looking at him, loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Take up the cross and follow me. But uh, this rich young ruler was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, so... Uh, I want to, first of all, admit to all of you, like I do often when I'm teaching, that there is uh, no small mystery in these passages. I could teach uh, extended series from these passages and not begin to exhaust the considerations, the associations, the depth, the principles, the spiritual wisdom, even the prophetic insight that are in just a normal passage of Mark where we have read about this unique day in the life of Jesus. And so I want to, I want to make a pass at it. I want to make an attempt. You know, uh, they say an essay 
that word we use, someone writes an essay. Um, in the French, that means it's an attempt. Well, I feel like all my messages, all my sermons, all my Bible studies are an attempt. Um, oftentimes when I get down, get done, uh, particularly if I, if I make the mistake of rereading it after I've taught it, I'm uh, struck with a sense of, well, I tried. Uh, maybe I'll do better next time. Uh, there are two images that are almost never preached together. In fact, in being around the church my whole life, I've never once heard the story of Jesus blessing little children preached in conjunction with the story of the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful because he had many possessions and could not let go of them. Uh, I have preached both passages, never preached them together. In fact, full confession, in the journeying through this book of Mark, the scripture by scripture um, instruction, learning, growth from it, I had no intention of teaching these together until today when I was rereading the text, I paused and I asked the Lord, Lord, um, if is there something I'm missing here? And as he often does, uh, he will make me to uh, know something or place a thought in my mind. I don't consider it revelation because that is in many ways misleading. Um, and the idea of revelation places your own opinion on the same level as Holy Scripture, and that's not what I'm doing. Um, rather, inspiration, I think, is a safer way to think of what we derive from the text. But in the study, in the becoming, in the learning, when you're in the moment, it feels like revelation, even though you are careful not to exalt that to the level of such. Um, so let's lay foundations and then I'll try to put these things together in an understanding that challenges all of us. Here's the first thing. It was not normal for this time, this hour, this generation for children to receive a place of honor. They, at least one scholar I have read um, has said specifically that in this time, uh, the lowest status people in any group um, an ancient setting is not the women, it's not even the slaves, it's the children. Uh, children were not fawned over in the manner we fawn over our children. Um, I'm not saying parents did not love their children, they did, but there was a harsh reality that kept parents from, how shall we say, um, connected in the same way that the modern world venerates and offers affection to children. And that is so many children died. You will know if you are at all a history buff that it was not uncommon for parents, if they had wealth, to avoid um, being the day-to-day -day caretaker of their children because of the world-shattering pain when they died. You can read stories of uh, women who had many, many children, the majority of who died. Um, and so if you look at some of the commentary of scholars in the ancient world, you will find that women are, are excuse me, uh, children are the lowest status people there. Also, children were not 
managed in the same manner that they are today. This is still the case in the, the third world. In the first world, the wealthy, the wealthy world, mainly the West, but also there's plenty, there's plenty of wealthy uh, countries that's not in the West, such as, well, for example, Japan um, or Singapore, or uh, these are Asian countries that are quite high on the wealth scale. Um, we manage our children. They can hardly play in the yard without having somebody hovering over them. This is not the third world in poor, the poor world. This is not the case at all. Uh, children oftentimes um, run freely. They run in packs. This is still the case. If you travel, you will see this. And so children in many cases were viewed as um, a nuisance. Uh, there is at least one testimony um, given to us by um, Sarsfield family who our church supports in Africa that the ministry that um, was started by uh, Sean Sarsfield's wife uh, with children was because in these churches in the third world, uh, they're primarily working in uh, the Sudan um, and the nations in that area. In that part of the world, children would not even be allowed to go to church. Um, while the parents with the church, the children just roved around outside and, and in many cases still do. They, they weren't allowed in the church. They, they were almost like roving packs of feral children. Um, this is not how the wealthy world raises our children. Um, this is another reason why uh, in the wealthy world, birth rates fall precipitously. Uh, from like multiple, like say the four to eight, all the way down to oftentimes 2.2 or less. Um, some of the rich countries in the world don't even have demographics to replace their current population. Uh, nations like Germany, uh, nations like Japan, um, these nations, are, uh, you get the idea. As a result, women, uh, children had the lowest status uh, in almost any crowd. Uh, they weren't in the same manner uh, made over uh, like a child in the wealthy uh, world is today. And so if you think what's happening in this scene is like Sunday school at a church in uh, a wealthy suburb on a street corner when everybody's in their Sunday go to meet and close, uh, you are looking at the scripture through Western eyes, through wealthy eyes, through modern eyes. Uh, you're not seeing it in terms of a nation like that. And if you go to nations that are uh, much closer to agrarian societies, uh, very poor people, um, you will find uh, very much the children almost as running wild, taking care of themselves, um, coming home in the evening to eat. Um, and in the same manner that in a lot of missions, uh, children aren't even allowed in the church. Uh, children coming to Jesus cause almost an irritation. And so the disciples take it upon themselves to keep these irritating children away. Now, there is uh, something in this passage that uh, makes us see it not simply as troublesome children, but as families. And that passage is, is, is right here where they brought little children to him that he might bless them. So if you try to put yourself in the context of the moment, not just read it with, you know, Western ears and imaginations, um, there may have been any number of tumult around Jesus. 
And there may have been, you know, roving packs of older kids. And there may have been disciples trying to keep all of this sorted out. Okay. Sorted out. And it starts, how does it start? It starts with a family, a parent, uh, bringing a child to Jesus um, to, to bless. Um, and the disciples rebuke them, keep them away. This displeases Jesus. And if you read Greek scholars, and I cannot read in the Greek, I wish it would be wonderful if I could, um, but Greek scholars read this passage. And here, verse 14, they say, this scripture is much harsher in the Greece in in the Greek Greek than it is um, in how it reads through translators. Translators have made it sound almost polite, but scholars say if you read this in the Greek, it, it, it sounds very strong. It's almost like Jesus yelled at him. Um, and so he says, have receiving the children, he rebukes the disciples and uses the children gathering as examples of how we enter into the kingdom of God, all right? We become as a child. There are, there are several unique things of children. Uh, the first one is a child's capacity for wonder. Um, I was hearing a, or reading an older preacher, and he was saying that he had a story that, that really s- struck home to him. He was watching, he was sitting on the side of a, small town street and was watching a mother try to get her child across the street. And she was in a hurry. She had to be somewhere obligation. She had the idea and the child was kept dropping to the ground and picking up uh, rocks on this gravel road. And he said, the child was seeing little lines of quartz in these, this gravel. And he slipped out of his mom's grasp and he grabbed a rock and he held it up to her. And he said, mom, look, there's stars in the rocks. He's looking at the quartz lines, you know, there's stars in the rocks. And uh, his mother uh, slapped the, you know, kind of patted the rock out of his hand and grabbed him and pulled him. And she said, baby, we don't have time for that. That's such an example. (laughs) She's probably right. She has obligations. The world doesn't wait on her. And here you have a child seeing stars in rocks and the world saying, we we don't have time for that. Um, This is, I think, through the memory of this, this elderly uh, pastor who was writing his memoirs. Um, this is an example, I think, of what it means to become like a little child. The first thing of a child that we lose is capacity for wonder. We lose it. Um, we get cynical with age. We get tired with obligations. Um, we are not impressed with lines of quartz and rocks. Um, and it's not that we're wrong. It's not that we're wrong. There's nothing particularly valuable about lines of quartz and rocks. But what we lose is not practical value. What we lose is imaginative potential. It's not that we lose. The child doesn't know what's valuable. He he or she needs a parent to take care of him or her, (laughs) pay for their roof over their head, feed them. They don't, they're not good at practical value, but what they are good at is open to the immense possibility of a world of wonder. That's number one. They see wonder. Number two, they have an almost limitless capacity for joy. Um, a child can can have fun if the child is uh, a happy child and is not dealing with his own or her own, you know, dilemmas. Um, they are 
such capacity for joy. We, we lose that as adults. We get tired. We get heavy. Uh, if it's not amazing, we roll our eyes. Um, children have a tremendous capacity for joy. You've heard all of this taught before. This isn't new. This is just a reminder of the uniqueness of children. Um, the third thing that I, I want to point out here, um, I, I think it is, it is the reason why this story is placed right beside the story of uh, the rich young ruler. Um, and, that is, and that is this. Uh, children have very primary desires and values. They're, they're hot. They're cold. They're hungry. You see what I'm saying? They don't have secondary value systems. They have primary value systems. Will you play with me? Ouch, that hurts. They have primary value systems. They don't know they're poor because they have primary value systems. Do they have something to eat? Do they have a warm place to sleep? Is their house safe? They don't know whether or not they're rich or poor. They don't know whether or not somebody is you know, cooler than them. All of that misery starts in the teenage years. Yes, I'm picking on the teenagers. Um, all of that misery starts then. Uh, children, younger children have, and I'm saying it this way because I think this is the reason why it's placed beside the rich young ruler. Um, children live in the moment. They don't worry a whole lot about whether or not their car is showing the neighbors that they have value, the car they're riding in. Hopefully they're not driving. That would be uh, problematical. Um, they're just in the car. They don't have these systems of who's good, who's rich, who is fancy, who is powerful. All of that develops in the misery of the teenage years, and it nearly kills you in the teenage years. And then hopefully you keep it together in the teenager years to get through that experience of that secondary value system misery until you get to an adult age and you're able to put those secondary values, desires, lusts, all of that in a context of where you are, what your abilities are, how hard you're willing to work, because a lot of this is uh, a character. Some people are willing to work fanatically hard. Some people just want to go to the park every day. There's no right or wrong. It's what fits you. I mean, well, there is a right or wrong, but not in something like that, how hard you want to work. Um, if you're working in your gifts, if you're seeking to live a life of meaning that in some way nourishes the whole man or woman, not just the flesh or not just your intellectual interests, but spirit, soul, mind, body, you're nourishing the whole man. Um, you find a way to make progress, make a nest, make yourself as organized as possible, get your house in order. And you have to deal with all these secondary values. Uh, do I like this house or not? Would I rather that car or that car? Does this say something about me when I wear this kind of clothes? Does it say something about me that makes me feel better about myself? Do I think I look good in a hat? You see what I'm saying? All of this stuff is 
the secondary values of status, place, influence, etc. Children do not live in that world. Children live in a world of primary, simple, I'm hungry, or I'm full, I'm warm, or I'm cold, we're having fun, or we're bored. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, and that simplicity, I believe, that simplicity of setting aside all of the secondary value systems, the secondary lusts of the flesh, uh, you understand what I'm saying? That war against spiritual life. So this is, this is I think, as much as children's capacity for joy, as much as children's capacity for wonder is, those are two positives. They also lack some things. They don't care about a lot of the stuff that drives us adults crazy. <laughs> they just do not care about a lot of the stuff that makes teenagers miserable. They just don't care. They don't, they don't, they don't, they haven't developed now we can, you know, kind of think, yeah, we're the children and that's true. But yes, they need someone to take care of them. Yes, they need someone to pay their bills. Yes, they need someone to worry about what we're eating for dinner. But in the same manner that Mary is just at his feet in the moment and Martha is the local parental <laughs> uh, authority, you know, someone's got to feed the crowd. Someone's got to take care of that. And what you see there is not responsible and irresponsible. Although if you want to compress the lesson into one thing, you could make an argument. It's not what you see. What you see really is the heart of a childlike primary values versus an adult-like secondary values, or let me say it this way, secondary worries. Martha's living in a world of secondary worries. And excuse me, Martha is, and Mary is just in the moment at the feet of G at Jesus. Children live that Mary life, that, <laughs> that, that life of Mary. It works either way. They live that primacy. They live that immediacy. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, they don't have the distraction of secondary value systems. How much am I making? What does my car say about me? Why do they have a nicer car? Is that neighborhood a good place for, do you see what I'm saying? Um, and now we're going to have in counterpoint to the simplicity of a child's primary, almost first order uh, values and first order potential. They're either warm or cold. They don't see who has on the most expensive coat. They're either hungry or full. They don't worry about who ate the most expensive restaurant dinner. Um, they're either having fun or they're bored. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's very primary. Now we have a rich young ruler who approaches and he asks a very important question. Um, what, what shall I do to have an eternal life? Now, just that the fact that he believes in eternal life uh, sets him outside of the Sadducees and makes him much closer to the Pharisees. But he's a, 
He is a uh, ruler, a rich, young ruler. He has authority. So the uniqueness of this is that high status people in the time of Jesus were much more likely to be of the Sanhedrins than they were of the Pharisees. Pharisees was middle class at best. Um, they were very much a, a party of the people. Sadducees, for example, every high priest, Sadducee, almost every member of the Sanhedrin council, uh, and I think it was every member, was Sadducee. Um, it was the Pharisees who were of the people. It was the Sadducees who had places of authority. Here's a man with a place of authority, but he believes like a Pharisee. He believes in eternal life which is very, very unique. He has something in his heart that is considering these things. He's not just calculating the best possible path to elevate himself. He's not just hungry for power. He's actually moved by the theology, as it were, of a party of the people where they believe in eternal life. And he comes to Jesus because perhaps he knows Jesus has come down clearly, and he has on the side of eternal life. He knows the Pharisees have asked specifically about this, you have to assume, because he doesn't ask Jesus if he believes in eternal life. He asks Jesus, how can I obtain it? And Jesus, first of all, challenges him in his uh, theology. Uh, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. Uh, this is very much a challenge to self-righteous religion. It's a challenge to what makes you holy. Are you made holy because you keep the law? Are you made holy because you give $52 to the church every year? <laughs> Are you made holy because you wear sleeves to the wrists? Are you made holy because you had, don't, you don't, you don't watch TV except at your deer camp or your RV or your rent house? What makes you holy? What is your standard? What do you assume? Because if you have a form of godliness, what you will have is a substitutionary holiness. You will have something that is not really, it, it's not in the, it, it's not in the mission. It's very much a signaling thing. It's not missional. It's signaling. And the house of Israel has that. It's their ceremonial law. It's their inheritance, their religious inheritance through the law of Moses. They have that. Um, and Jesus makes a point with this rich young ruler who's about to say, I've kept all the commandments as long as I can remember. He's about to say that. Jesus knows his heart, challenges on him. Why are you calling me good? There's only one who is good. But Jesus makes the point but doesn't linger for the argument. Maybe he's tired after a full day of ministry. He does not linger for the argument. And he says, okay, let's, let's deal with this. You know the commandments. Have you kept them? The man says, yes, from my youth. I'm so good. I, my, I squeak when I walk. My feet don't touch the ground. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him. Jesus separates his love from his approval. Jesus can love the sinner even in the sin. And Jesus, seeing his heart, calls him to be a disciple. This is a unique call. He doesn't call him to be a part of the crowd. He calls them, him to be a part of the cross carrying crowd who else have been invited to carry a cross the crowds not necessarily the core yes the 12 jesus has been talking about the cross this man doesn't know what's going on with the cross he just thinks it's a roman insult 
And here Jesus has been talking to the cross about the, to the disciples, do you see? And here they are. Uh, they, they've heard this. This man hasn't heard this. He says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. Come be a disciple. Come join my inner circle. Be one of mine. Um, and the man was sad at this word. He went away sorrowful. Why? He had great possessions. A child doesn't think like that. A child doesn't think in terms of, I'm rich. A child doesn't know he or she's rich unless you ruin them, raising them a certain way, or you teach them ridiculous adult comparisons at a young age. Hopefully you don't do that. Hopefully you grow up not even thinking about that kind of a thing. You start figuring it out as you get in your teens. Um, children don't think in terms of, children live in the moment. Children see the wonder that us practical types don't see. Children are drawn. And here Jesus tells the crowd, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to become like a child. And following the next story, the Peter, through John Mark's pen, chooses to tell as the rich young ruler. Right there. Cheek by jowl. Next thing happening. Master, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus just told him, become like a child. But this man has something that a child doesn't have. And here's the reality that should put all of us in a place of devotion. We all have a reality that children don't have. We live in a world of secondary value systems. We live in a world of comparison one to another. We live in a world of who is getting ahead and who's falling behind. We live in a world of who has influence and who is ignorable. I heard an awful story today. Um, not awful in the sense of tragic, just awful. I was meeting with a, a good friend, brother in the Lord, love, love him. We were talking and he told me about a rich man he knew that, that the man was, this is back during uh, the, the COVID before the restrictions lowered. The man was flying to France in a private jet and he was FaceTiming him because they were doing some work. They were connected through work. And he asked him, he's like, how are you going to, uh, how are you going to Paris? Do you have your, or going to France? Do you have your card? You had to have a card to get in. Um, and the man of course wasn't wearing a mask cause he was flying private. And, and the man told him, he said, well, this may sound bad, but let me tell you the truth. Rules are for poor people. He said, when you fly private, they don't check you. <laughs> he said, and they, it's, they're not going to check my card when I get there. They're not going to ask me to put on a mask. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, that's an awful story. <laughs> that's the kind of story that even if it were true, you wouldn't want to say out loud. <laughs> you know exactly what I mean. It might be that the reason why it's really, really hard for us rich people, and by the comparison of the world, all of us are better than well off. Quit looking at your neighbors. Think about the multiplied billions who are living on just a fraction, a tiniest fraction of what you're living on. Um, it might be that we are, we are so laden with cares. We are so laden with concerns that it kills our spiritual potential 
We wonder why there's so many miracles in the third world. Critics say, oh, it's because people believe he's near. I don't think so. I don't think they know whether or not their family member dies from something or not. They're not stupid. They may not be educated, but they're not stupid. They know who dies. And there's so many more miracles. They know if they're not sick. You see what I'm saying? Um, They're not educated, but they're not dumb. They're very much uh, functioning in their world. And it's a world that in many ways is much harder than the world we function in. Um, And they have so many more miracles, so many more demonstrations. Um, I think they live in a world of of primary values. Um, It's much easier for them to be like a child in faith. And we live in the world of the, 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 the rich young ruler. We have so much. We don't know whether to take care of ourselves or let God take care of us. We don't know whether to go to the, our own highly paid, qualified doctor or believe God. We don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? We live in a world of secondary uh, values that distract us, that keep us from simple faith. But if somehow spiritually we could get out of that world of comparison of who has this authority and who has that benefit and how much money they make and what neighborhood they live in. And do you see what I'm saying? And be like a child. You take children, one comes from a wealthy family, one comes from a poor family, you put them together, they're playing. They don't, they don't think about all that. Yeah. When they turn teenagers and uh, that's a different problem. <laughs> um, they, they don't think about that. And so it is with our potential to live in the realm of the spirit. And so I'm going to end with this. I'll speak for myself and then I'll include you. I want to live in a world of greater spiritual potential. And the Bible gives me clarity on the path in which I should be inclining my mind, my heart, my efforts. Do you see? If you would like to join me in an effort, if you feel the same potential of living in a realm of more demonstration of the power of faith, more demonstration of divine authority, more demonstration of what God can do. If you'd like to live there, we're going to have to push away from all of these contexts where you notice who's doing better and who's more talented and who's richer. And this comparison game that kills our spiritual potential. And in spite of a divine offer, For us to live in the realm of the miraculous, we go away sorrowful because like this ruler, we had many possessions. Let me say it this way. We had many distractions. We had many things we were thinking about, many things we were concerned about. We had many possessions. In fact, we had so many possessions that our possessions had became what we were living for. And even when given an opportunity to join the inner circle, even when presented with the discipleship opportunity, we say no. Because that which we grew into, all these secondary concerns, that practical spirit of Martha, got to do this, got to do that, got to do that, overwhelms the childlike wonder of Mary, the childlike wonder. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus, 
I want to pray for my heart. I don't want to presume I'm getting this right. Everyone else should just follow in my steps because I am. I'm the one getting it right. I, I think the opposite is probably true. Um, I overload myself as a function of my personality and then wonder why. Uh, a life of spiritual pursuits and a life of ministry becomes progressively harder because I have less and less to give uh, because I've overcommitted. Lord Jesus, the best thing any of us can do is to lay aside the vanity, which is, I think, our greatest enemy. I think vanity is the devil within that does the work of the devil. <laughs> I think vanity is, particularly for religious people, I think vanity is just that harmful. And Lord, I pray that somehow that convicting voice of the Holy Spirit would catch me in those moments where I am trapped into comparison I'm trapped into distraction. I'm imprisoned in the practical. And to just recognize it first, because if I don't recognize it, I'm like a blind man. I have to see first. The first thing is to see. If I can see the ditch, I might can avoid it. But if I can't see it, it's impossible to avoid it. So first of all, let me have a, an awakening in that moment where I'm, I'm drawn, challenged, uh, I catch myself and I say, look, yes, you're right. They have more money than you. Yes, you're right. They're doing better than you. Yes, this is not the path to spiritual life. Yes, they drive a nicer car. Yes, they have a higher status. Yes, they fly private. You're shoehorned into coach. Yes, yes, but this is not the path to spiritual life. Comparing one with another is not the path. I mean, I can do it if I insist, but it's not the path. I open my eyes that first I can see the ditch and then having seen it, maybe I can avoid it. Lord, help me to seek after spiritual wonder. Help me to seek after spiritual joy. Help us as a church to seek after spiritual joy, spiritual oneness. Help us as a pastoral staff, make sure we're ministering out of overflow and not obligation. You have it called slaves, even though we confess our status to you as willing and, will and, and able to be. You've asked us to be friends, not slaves. You've given, shown us the door and told us we could leave if we want to. You won't hold us back. But if we stay, it's going to be because we love you and we desire your kingdom to come in our lives. Lord, every time we are in conversation that is not edifying, let that voice awaken in our mind and just, just say, look, you can gossip if you want to, but this is not the way to spiritual life. This is not going to show you more miracles. This is not going to show you more ministry. You can you can you can play in this muddy pond of who did what if you want to. But this is not the path. There is no replacing a childlike heart calling upon your name, desiring your touch. So minister to us, I pray, creating us a clean heart, renew a right spirit. We pray, O oh God, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Amen. Wherever you're at, 
there is a spiritual step for you to take. If you're new in your faith or you've served God for many, many years, there is a spiritual step for you to take. I want to encourage you to take that step today. I want to encourage you, what it, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, there is a next step for you towards spiritual maturity. Uh, if you feel God, but you have not yet got comfortable with prayer, that's a, that's, that's a next step for you. Uh, if you're trying to become more spiritual in your lifestyle, but you have not begun to consistently repent of your sins, confess your sins to the Lord, that's a place to start. If you're doing that, if you're praying um, <clears throat> and you're beginning in prayer, the next thing that's going to feel natural for you, having gotten comfortable with prayer, is going to be comfort, comfort with praise. Praise is different than prayer because prayer, oftentimes your focus is on you. I need this. I need that. I help me with this. Help me with that. Praise, your focus is on God. Um, the next step of your progress will be when prayer, the comfort of prayer turns into the comfort of praise. Um, so just to, again, uh, repentance. Um, if you haven't been baptized yet, we'd like to baptize you. We, we're ready on every Sunday to baptize. Very, very rare that we are doing maintenance or something that we're not ready to baptize. If you haven't been baptized, we would like to baptize you. What's your next step? Um, it's a public testimony. It's, it's you publicly calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, and finally, if you're comfortable in prayer, you're regularly repentant of your sins, you're comfortable in praise, uh, the next step is the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, God's been working with you from before you even started repenting, do you see? But God is working with you. The Holy Spirit is leading you while we were yet sinners. Uh, the work begins, but there's a testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign, yes. It's not the only sign, but it's a powerful sign that I think has the most impact on the believer, and this is shown biblically, than any of the signs, and that is you having the personal experience with God. If you're not comfortable in praise, you're not ready. I don't mean to be ugly, but if you're not comfortable in praise, you're not going to relax in that moment and surrender because that moment is about surrender. The Lord doesn't force you. It's not possession. He doesn't grab your lips. It's surrender. It's an utterance within you. It's a, a surrender to an utterance. Uh, stammering lips. It's a surrender to, yes, stammering lips. Stammering lips with surrender becomes another tongue, but they're both testimonies of the Holy Ghost. It's not like there's one that's a little t testimony, the other's a big testimony. They're both equal, biblically, testimonies of the Holy Spirit. It's your surrender. Why did God choose to do it that way? Because every step of your progression from here on out is not going to happen unless you learn how to surrender. And so he starts with your tongue, which no man can tame. Can you surrender that? It's a sign to you. All right, that's enough. I love you. God bless you. Please be social for Easter. Include your friends. And include your, if you want to take someone out to dinner, you, you, I will buy. Let me know. I will pay for them. You take them to dinner. You bring them to church. Let me know. I will, I will find a way that if you can't afford it, for you to take them to a dinner. Now, I don't want you going to Ruth's Chris because I, I ain't that loaded. But I'll find a way. Don't let anyone not be social. Include your friends. Include your family. Bring them to church. This is our corporate celebration. This is a high holy day. 
we go to the house of the Lord, we say, he is not dead as you thought, as you supposed. He's not here. He has risen. All right, that's enough. God bless you. We love you. Your mics are on. You can greet one another on the way out. Thank you for your time. Let's have a great week in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.